Welcome to IDGen, a podcast about crypto technology, security, and culture. We balance the hype and the hate. We are cutting through the misinformation. We're cutting through the ego. We are looking for the signal in the noise. This week, we've got a special guest on with us. His name is David Theodore. He is a security researcher at the Ethereum Foundation. We're going to talk about why crypto security is hard. We're going to talk about securing the Ethereum merge. We're going to talk about a bunch of other wild stuff. David, are you with us? Yep. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, this should be a wonderful episode. I uh, had the pleasure of meeting David at the merge party, which was Oh gosh, almost two months ago, uh, there was a merge party with some of the core ETH developers in uh, Boulder, Colorado, and it was a really awesome night, uh, probably one of the smartest rooms of people I've ever been in, and uh, just great energy there with excitement and people being, you know, hesitantly and nervously excited and just to watch it go off flawlessly with you know, um, such a stellar crew of people was great and got to talk to David after and he kind of shared some of the things, his thoughts on the space and security. And I thought we have to have him on ID, Jen. I think I messaged Zach right away. And so um, I really appreciate you taking the time to jump on this podcast with us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me and uh, fond memories. I, I think you got to see me go through the emotional roller coaster of like pre-merge countdown, all the like nerves and jitters and just kind of keeping in the back of my head like everything that i know could go wrong um and then just the elation of uh basically like a flawless merge um good times it was it was yeah. a lot of fun it was a lot of fun there might have been a, a bottle of tequila that i put out and i don't think i knew when i came to this party that we were going to be live streaming the room that we were in i feel like you might have gotten a text from somebody mentioning the bottle of tequila that i put yeah actually uh i didn't even tell my dad but for some reason my dad was watching like the live stream and i think that bottle of tequila kind of looked like a bong and he was like what is that on the table um, yeah, that was, that was pretty funny. And, and I think maybe, uh, right after the merge happened, I just went straight for that tequila and took some shots with my team, um, and didn't even think to turn around and just be like, Hey man, whose tequila is this? Uh, but yeah, it was, it was really a great time that it was there. Thank you for that. Yeah, it was there for the take. And I was, uh, just happy to be celebrating with such a, a amazing crew of people. So that was wonderful. So David, tell us a little bit about your background, you know, maybe before coming up to Ethereum Foundation, what you did, and, and then maybe, you know, a little bit about what you do at the foundation. Uh, yeah. So I've been a security engineer for, gosh, man, long time, seven, eight years, almost a decade if you count like tinkering in, in school and stuff. Um, have an electrical engineering background, got, got really into hardware um, in school and then kind of like discovered security on accident. Uh, I, I accidentally like reset windows, uh, 17 pages into like a long paper, uh, due a few days later. And I, you know, I, I had taken like one C programming class was probably like maybe three quarters of the way through it. And I knew that people did data recovery and I was also like a broke waiter in school. So I had to do it myself and I discovered Kali Linux in the process and recovered my data. 
Uh, and in the, you know, that was back when we had like spinning hard disks. So it took like 12 or 24 hours to, to go across my drive and, and find, uh, you know, these documents and whatever that I needed to recover. And in the meantime, I saw this like wireless penetration and, and hash cracking and all this stuff. And was just like, wow. And I, I never looked back. Um, I went into the defense industry, did some network engineering. Cause that was like kind of the segue into security. Um, and then I, I worked in the defense industry and exploit development, focused a lot on, um, hardware again, um, lots of drones, routers, browsers, OSs, things like that. And then eventually ended up, uh, kind of taking the reverse engineering skills from security research and, and doing a lot of malware reversing at Google, specifically in Android. And then, uh, you know, in the meantime, I, I loved ETH back in 2016, 2017, I kind of discovered it. Um, in the same journey that I kind of like went down the security rabbit hole for anonymity online and started saying, what is this Bitcoin stuff uh, on these dark web markets? And then discovered Monero and ETH just blew my mind. Um, back in the day, it was just ICOs, but I think a few buddies of mine, you know, we, we saw the writing on the wall. Fast forward a few years, uh, Ethereum was able to kind of pay the bills now, as opposed to just being a hobby back then. And uh yeah, pivoted over to back to security research from malware reversing and, and specifically in the consensus layer. So all the beacon chain clients uh, for the EF. And uh, now that we've merged, kind of merged in the execution layer as well. It's not so much to application security, but, um, you know, Geth and and uh, all of the other like Besu, Aragon, the, uh, the consensus layer or the execution layer clients have now ended up on my roadmap. And I've been focusing mm-hmm. a lot on um, really just the systemic network layer uh, stuff. So yeah, that's why the merge was kind of like a big a big day for us. We've been finding bugs in all of those clients and then kind of helped build a small team to do that. And uh, yeah, when it went well, it was just kind of like a huge weight off of our shoulders. Well, nice work. I mean, that, that was super impressive. You guys made it kind of look easy, to be honest, from an outside perspective. It just <laughs> seemed so smooth, you know? Yeah. Uh, from our perspective, you know, you see how the sausage is made, you know, we found bugs in every single CL client, all five of them, um, criticals in a lot of them. And, and I think like I can define critical in in this context a a little bit later, but we've had so many test nets. We were doing like local, uh, you know, no network dependency runs in proprietary hypervisors where we're like dropping packets and pausing threads. And, you know, we really stress tested these things and we did all of these test net merges. We did all of these shadow forks and we found bugs like every single one of them. So to have the merge go off, like without a hitch was just incredible. Um, it was like, it blew all of our expectations to be honest. And that's what I was going to ask. So you were, you, it sounds like you were a little nervous going in. Like it was, you, you weren't quite sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is, uh, I guess the way I would see it, like it fluctuated, like leading up to it, it was like, okay, I think it'll be okay. A lot of it comes down to also um, just like how the protocols built, right? So if you have a critical bug in a single client architecture, you know, you could have the network go down and, and ETH has not gone down, right? It's, there's been some like DDoSing that happened back in the day, but like for the most part, it's, it is the security premium chain. There's a ton of value on it. And we have this multi-client architecture on purpose. And so even if there were some bugs, uh, the network would, would most likely live on. Um, but, you know, having said that, like leading up to it, knowing the, the clients that I really focused on and kind of like as a security researcher, you never say like, oh, yeah, it's secure. You, you just kind of like find bugs before the hackers do. You report them and fix everything you can. 
but yeah, I think like leading into it, I felt pretty good that the network was going to be fine. The protocol was going to be fine, but I did have some worry that like some of our less tested clients that are, you know, maybe less used would be um, kind of lagging. And it was just kind of one of those things where it's like, there's a lot of optics, like the world is watching, right? And uh, Ethereum today is not Ethereum from five years ago. There's incredible minds working on it. And the talent, I mean, I, I came from, you know, like the top tier engineering firms where um, out in Silicon Valley, and I've worked with tons of people there and the quality of talent at the Ethereum Foundation and all the, all the client teams is like top notch now. So the world's watching, Ethereum is growing up and we were in the spotlight. And so, you know, if the if we have finalization and the blocks are, you know, landing and everything's okay, but we have like degraded throughput, that's something the news is going to look at. And we've got all these other industries looking at us and, and kind of under the microscope in that moment. So that was still just kind of a worry. It, was, it wasn't just like, is it going to go off well, some Boolean true or false? It's like, how well is it going to go um, if things finalize? And it was like flawless. There was maybe one or two missed slots. And they were, I think we needed, you know, there was like a script we wrote where we could actually see the gossip slots as they came in. So we knew like instantly when it was okay. Before we even had finalization at the end of an epoch, um, for those that are familiar with the protocol, we were like already counting on the slots to make sure we had enough. And when we knew we had enough to finalize, it was like, yes, you know, pretty sure Hunt was like right behind me looking over my shoulder. Um, and then it was just pandas coming down the screens, right? And that was just such a, a great moment. It was a wonderful moment to wit uh, witness. And yeah, I was definitely looking over your shoulder being like, how is he so calm during so with so much on the line? So uh, yeah, it was really wonderful to witness. And, and so it sounds like part of the concern was that not necessarily that something major was going to go wrong, but even if something small happened, how that was going to be processed and then displayed out to the world. Like they were going to, yeah. you know, everything, everything looks like, you know, crap under a microscope as some people say, although I do feel kind of like things look really cool under a microscope sometimes, but yeah, for, forget that. Right. Um, so that was kind of like a concern was, was how, uh, it was going to be perceived regardless of of what actually happened. Yeah, I think also like we have this brand, like we say we want Ethereum to be able to survive World War III, right? Um, you can't have a global settlement layer and and have it go down. You can't have like degraded throughput even. And so when there's trillions of dollars of TVL and all of these tokens that are on top of this platform and maybe small countries are thinking about deploying stable coins and L2s, uh, maybe even big ones, you, you really have a brand you got to defend here. Um, there's a reason that Ethereum block space is so valuable and people are willing to pay hundreds of dollars to land a transaction um, in key moments. It's because it's the security premium chain. And, you know, I think there's some like protocol weaknesses that I still have in the back of my mind that we have fixes in the pipeline for. But in my mind, like thinking about um, the adversarial model here, like who would want to stop us, right? Like uh, an authoritarian country that maybe doesn't like strong property rights or, you know, so if there was a moment to really hit ETH, it would have been like right then and there while the world was watching. And the optics are just super important when there's people putting, you know, their, their life savings and value on this thing. That's super interesting. I hadn't considered that, but I guess that would have been the time, huh? If, if somebody had an exploit or a plan and they really wanted to cause harm to Ethereum, I mean, that would have been the time. Oh, for sure. For sure. Uh, it also like attacks are expensive, right? There's monetary tax, like buying up block space. There's denial of service attacks um, where you, you know, you rent somebody's like botnet. 
um, and try to like denial of service proposers. And, you know, if you're going to spend the money to do these things, do it while the world is watching on a live stream would have been the, uh, the way to go, but didn't happen. And I, um, you know, I don't think it's over yet, right? It's, it's, it's just always going to be a thing that we've got to defend. But um, every single iteration that we make on this thing, we make it more resilient. And it's, it's like very close to uh, what I would consider like secure at the protocol level. There's a few things like uh, SSLE, the, the, share, the shared secret, or I'm sorry, single secret leader election, which is basically like a way to use a small ZK proof. You reduce the anonymity set, but keep it large enough. And so we don't know proposers ahead of time. Nobody knows who a proposer is except for that proposer. And that proposer can kind of like give a proof whenever they propose that it's them. And that would prevent denial of service attacks um, from being targeted, right? You'd have to like DDoS a, a, a set of like 12,000 proposers versus just one proposer every 12 seconds. Um, there's a few things that like, I think we still need to do here, but once those things are implemented and we, you know, we have like this network that's, you know, we can do all this high scaling thing, all this like super fast finality in L2s, but then like the actual settlement is super robust to timing decay um, and, and, and all the kinds of variations that you could see across the internet globally. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just so stoked about it, uh, to be a part of it and just to be like a small, a, a small part of such a huge coordinated thing was incredible. And it's never been done before. Right. I mean, I posted something like that on a tweet after, and people are like, Oh, Cardano switched to proof of stake back. And I'm like, no, we had five consensus layer clients. We had a mev boost middleware. We had, you know, three or four major execution clients, all these teams basically writing something to just work on the first go um, in the live network. Like nobody does that, you know, Google and, and Amazon don't get together and, and integrate their products and it work on the first time, much less nine different teams across, you know, of the entire world, different time zones, speaking different languages, some of them coming together and upgrading a network without hitting the reboot button. Like that's incredible. Um, I think it'll go down in the history books in like software development, uh, folklore for, for many years. Right. And I, I hope to see, uh, other people and other chains kind of like follow in our footsteps. Um, I think it was really cool and it was a coordination event of Epic scale. That is really something I, for, for this discussion, we had talked a little bit ahead of time about kind of talking about some of the reasons that crypto security is hard and what to do to fix it. And we had thought about maybe talking about the user perspective and app perspective, but I feel like since we have you on that, um, it would be maybe more valuable to really dig into this. Do you mind, uh, if that's all right with you guys? Yeah, let's improv. Yeah. Um, would you, could you maybe like just jump back and zoom back for someone that isn't familiar with, for example, the data availability, availability layer, execution layer, and just talk like a quick high level overview of what those components are and how, you know, what this, this merge, um, to proof of stake really looked like. Cause I think, um, that would be really helpful maybe to some of our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I'll start where, where listeners probably are familiar with, right? Like they, they go on Uniswap, they, they mint an NFT somewhere, they, you know, trade in a DEX. These things are like in the application layer and these applications live inside of this VM, right? This virtual machine, the EVM. Um, I think people are kind of familiar with that. And there's these execution clients. They, they process every transaction that comes in. They keep the state of this virtual machine. Um, they handled up until the merge, um, the way that we, we mine and like come to consensus on what the next like update to the state is. 
and they get paid for these like transactions, right? So your transaction fees and then a certain amount of issuance on each block is minted. And so the execution clients are, are computing this hash if people are familiar with proof of work and they're, they're also computing these like state differences and they're gossiping around messages all the time. And whoever can compute the hash next gets the, uh, gets the reward and kind of gets to decide the ordering of the blocks and all this kind of stuff. And so we have that as the execution layer, um, right? And the, the application layer that people are familiar with lives kind of like on top of that. And what we needed to do was basically change that um, algorithm for consensus from proof of work to proof of stake. So instead of racing to see who can you know, compute some random value um, with various constraints and, and burning a lot of electricity, and then also um, having to pay people for, for burning that electricity and for the computation, what we've done is just found this like much cheaper way to say, hey, um, let's incentivize honesty in a different way. Let's incentivize honesty in a capital efficient way. Let's incentivize honesty in a, in a much more um, energy efficient way. And the way that we do that is you just get skin in the game, right? So you put up some, some slashable ETH and you, you can, you know, attest when it's your turn to, you, you attest to like different propo proposals and these blocks, instead of coming in randomly at random times, like on average about 13 to 15 seconds, they come in like on a very strict time quant of, of 12 seconds. And they're chosen randomly by all the people that stake. And if you're honest, you get an APY and you get the transaction fees that used to go to the miners. And if you're dishonest, then you lose your stake. And so what we've done is we've taken like the crypto economics that kind of worked in proof of work. And we've like iterated on a newer version of crypto economics that ends up being much better for everyone, right? We don't have to issue as much, which means that ETH holders don't have to like pay as much for security, but we get more economic security. And in that process, we have, right, we talked about the application layer and the execution layer. Now we've had to add a new layer. And the reason is because all of this requires some accounting. So there's this other chain now, this beacon chain, and it just keeps track of all of the different account balances of everybody that's staking. It keeps track of like how, how quickly you attest to things and everybody kind of votes on blocks and, and hey, I saw this block and this block's valid and, and all these proposals. And so you've got to keep track of that. And so we had to kind of like seamlessly hand off the consensus algorithm while never stopping the execution layer, while never stopping the applications. I mean, people were minting NFTs on, on block zero, right, uh, of, of the proof of stake chain. And so we, we needed to do this kind of handoff here and we needed to do it well. And there was just so much complexity involved in the coordination because we needed a multi-client architecture. If there's a critical bug, the network would go down. But the protocol is such that, you know, if we're running a bunch of different nodes and there is a critical software bug in one of them, the network can live on. And so we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot in our ability to... Um, update fast. But what we've done is we've said, you know what, we're willing to sacrifice that for security and reliability of the network. Um, so yeah, and there's also this other component um, that I don't really want to go too much into, but there's this like MEV component where you can kind of make some some money for like reordering transactions or, you know, rebalancing um, across DEXs, like doing arbitrage various things and some of that actually like had to change too so there's this other like middleware layer that's like it's actually more of like a sidecar because if it fails it should fail gracefully and the network should fall back to its local building but we had to also work with that software a lot of people wanted to support that off the bat because like economics are um very strong these crypto economics they they are like the incentive design that makes this thing work like crypto is built on it and so when there's extra money to be left on the table um, even if it does sometimes mean adding some complexity, that's something that we also had to support, right? 
might've been a, a long-winded answer. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, that's great. That, uh, I think I followed most of it. I was trying to keep up there. Um, so, you know, the MEV stuff, you know, it's a, it's a very hot topic of discussion and, um, we've talked about potentially, you know, devoting a show or two to really get into that. And, and so, um, you know, maybe leaving that aside for now, what were some of the other components of the merge? Was there anything, did you guys find any, um, really like wild bugs leading up to the merge that could have been pretty deadly that kind of got, you know, quietly fixed or, um, you know, what, what was it like leading up to the merge, you know, the, the couple months before, uh, you know, hands on keyboard kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I think I got involved maybe like a year and a half or maybe, maybe a little less uh, before the merge. And I came from, um, you know, my, my true, like the way I, I kind of like see myself as a security researcher is it comes from where I learned, which was in exploit development. And there's, you know, this whole industry where people want capabilities right on on various devices um, and those capabilities could be like reading your text messages or email or whatever have you right um, and this is something that's like a very um, well it's well developed industry right so there's like a secondary market for these things and so like this doomsday um, in my mind is like what's possible right and so before like really digging into Ethereum, it's like, you know what? Crypto keys are going to be like a whole thing, right? It's not like like a bank where it takes three days to settle a transaction. You can reverse it. Like if somebody steals your key, they like they take it all. So there's like kind of some like good and bad qualities to this. Well, looking at the, the kind of design choices um, of all of the clients that um, run the network, they're, they're really good. So we have this like concept of memory safety and software. Um, and so you think of like C and C++ and like all these traditional languages, they, they oftentimes will have um, issues where if there is a bug, if a developer makes a mistake, you can like control, you can gain control of the program, right? So we call this remote code execution. And so like your, your modern operating systems, whether it be mobile or desktop, like have tons of these things because they have to be optimized and fast. Well, all of the clients that Ethereum is like run on are what we call memory safe languages. And there's some exception here, like we've optimized, um, some things that like need to be high performant, like uh, verifying cryptographic signatures or hash functions that like happen all the time, like hundreds of times per second. Um, so there's some exception to this and we've like really tested, tried and true like those libraries, right? But the rest of it's like, okay, if there's a bug, um, it's probably not gonna be like a bug where people are able to lift keys and like users funds are at risk. If there's a bug, it's probably going to be a bug that's like either a logic bug or like a denial of service bug. And so if you look at what a denial of service is in the traditional um, like vulnerability, like scoring system, I can't remember what it's called exactly. It's probably like a three or a four, depending on how easy it is to execute. It's not like a nine. It's not considered critical. But when you have something like a blockchain with like tons of value on the line and it needs to stay up, like if liquidations don't process within a few minutes, then like protocols become insolvent. That's a that's a deal breaker for a protocol, right? So this makes it where we don't really see these kinds of bugs because of the good design decisions in the software we use. It's all memory safe that where users are losing funds because of these type of memory exploits. But we also have to raise the bar like significantly about denial of service exploits. And that's kind of the thing that kept us up at night was like, we need to shake out all of these. And you can see 
um, you know, even Go and Rust and these other memory safe languages, it's not too hard to like index too far into an array, cause a panic and make the node shut down. And so there's different ways you can like kind of amortize this by like running things in like uh, special threads that if they do crash, the whole program doesn't crash. But yes, we did definitely find a lot of denial of service bugs. Um, we found them in multiple clients. And these are the kinds of things where like if say Prism at one point had like over 66%. If Prism were to um, have a wormable denial of service bug or a large, like well-resourced um, adversary was to like connect to a bunch of nodes, like purposely position themselves in the peer-to-peer -peer network where they like peered with all the Prism nodes and then they were to execute this, this type of bug, then the network would basically have a liveness issue. We wouldn't have finality. It might take like 12 hours for them to get things up and running. I mean, we've seen this kind of thing play out with like these newer... Uh, quote unquote, mainnet beta blockchains um, <laughs> uh, because they're kind of like flying by the seat of their pants and, and moving as fast as they can. Whereas we can't really do that with Ethereum. There's just too much value on it. So we definitely did find bugs. We patched tons of them. Um, some of the bugs were consensus bugs, which are like especially dangerous, um, even more so than maybe denial of service because you can end up with a chain split. So you can have maybe a condition where a certain type of transaction or a certain type of like message um, looks valid to one client and not the other. And that's really dangerous because you don't just have like a, a like a, the network goes down, you end up with like two networks, like a fork. And if somebody's like trading on one of them and, and they're, you know, their front end for their decks or like maybe Coinbase is, is, is like they're using Coinbase and Coinbase is running like one version of the node and, and uh, Binance is running a different one, then you end up with like two versions of truth. And how do you settle that? Especially if there's ambiguity in the spec. So the specification has to be like really hammered out and tried and true because you don't want a situation where half the world, like Europe is saying, hey, this is the canonical chain. And the US is saying, this is the canonical chain. And everybody has to start fighting over it. And if you can't come to agreement, then you could see like a huge social consensus failure. And we end up with like two worthless versions of the chain instead of one one that's very valuable. So we did see some of these kinds of things, but for the most part, like the, the number one, like major bug that we we shook out of all these clients was just a lot of denial of service bugs and we did this with fuzzing um we we really stress tested like timing um in in virtualized environments the network um we did a lot of like manual source code review we instrumented clients with race um condition like thread sanitization with uh asan and msan to look for memory things and we ran them and just like we ran them on mainnet we ran them in shadow forks and we shook out as many bugs as we could and we just worked with developers we basically had them all on speed dial um to, to patch everything and i think uh leading up maybe like a month or two before the merge we started to find less and less and that was kind of like the smell test um, in these private calls where we like, you know, kind of talk to like trusted developers that are working on them. It's like, okay, man, um, I think we we're, we're feeling pretty good about how hardened things are. And that was the uh, kind of the indicator that like, okay, maybe it's time. Let's, let's freeze the code. Let's not do any more complexity. Let's not add anything. Let's just only harden these things if we find bugs and let's set a merge date. That's super interesting. Um, I have a follow-up question for you on, 
kind of takes me back to that night of the merge party. And, you know, you're talking about it's it's not just you working on this. There's a ton of people and a ton of coordination. And I'll never forget a moment at the end of the night. You know, it's probably two in the morning. and Everybody's getting tired and things are winding down. And you and your team are like, well, it's on Germany now. We've kind of messaged them to know that they're, they're on watch. <laughs> um, so there's got to be a lot of coordination between a lot of different people. And we've seen inside the DAO ecosystem how sometimes coordination can be tough with a lot of differing opinions. Like, was it ever challenging to get everybody on the same page or agreements on like how to move forward with so many different client teams and so forth? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's dis- disagreements on some of the ways to fix some of the bugs. Um, there's definitely time zone coordination pains. Um, the the whole Sigma Prime team, which is one of the like more used, they make Lighthouse one of the more used consensus layer clients. They're all almost all Aussies. And so like, if you talk about time zone, like trying to schedule Europe and the US and South America and the Australians at the same time, is just a pain. So we had these like security testing calls that we basically alternated every week. Is it in the morning or is it in the evening for, for everyone, right? Um, I do think that uh, you see some of this complexity now, I mean, at the spec level. So like client teams aside, like just deciding, are we gonna put 4844, which is uh, the EIP for dank sharding, are we gonna put that in um, in this next update, or are we just going to enable withdrawals because people, you know, have been wanting those and just coming to a consensus on that when you don't really have, um, like an elected leader per se, or you don't really have like some like official way of doing it is always tricky. But at the end of the day, uh, people care so much about Ethereum. It's such a beautiful thing that they're willing to make compromises because if you don't compromise on this, then you end up with like something worthless. Um, so I, I think at the end of the day, the ethos is like play nice uh, with others and, and, you know, you're, everybody's just an individual that's part of this larger group, right? And Ethereum is for the world. And that sort of mindset makes it where people are willing to compromise and people are willing to do things. And I think it's done really well so far in steering the ecosystem. That's a, that's a pretty special thing you got going, I think, because it's not hard. It's not easy um, to have kind of like a decentralized group like that making decisions. I mean, I feel like that's kind of one of the big challenges for DAOs is, you know, how to actually get things done when you have kind of, uh, some of that disorganization. So that is, that is really cool to hear. And, um, since you brought it up now, I'm super interested in knowing what you think about what, what do you think is next? Is it going to be, uh, withdraws or dank sharding or how's it looking? So um, anyone that's like super curious, you can, you can basically watch the uh, all core devs call is where most of this gets hashed out. But right now it's looking like dang sharding is probably going to slip to maybe a second hard fork. Um, Withdrawals are going to come in maybe um, a few different like small EVM updates that aren't really um, that difficult to implement. But dang sharding requires this um, very interesting cryptographic primitive um, that can be like a computationally large lift. So there's this like Lagrange um, interpolation where you, you create these polynomials and you can uh, you can basically check and, and, and query the network and make sure uh, you can you can kind of like test somebody and say, hey, what is this point on this like massive polynomial curve? And if they can give you that point, then you have a really good cryptographic guarantee that they have all the data that's that's needed to produce that. And if they have all the data, then you don't need to ask them for all the data. You just need to ask them for this one point. There's also this really special thing where um, if some of the data does go missing, we can rebuild it and reconstruct it based off of these proofs. Uh, so we could lose as much as like, 
you know, 49% of the data in some cases, and we can still reconstruct it. And that has this computational lift uh, that makes it really kind of difficult to run on like smaller consumer hardware. And one thing that Ethereum has done is really prided itself on the ability to like run it on a Raspberry Pi, right? And if you can reduce the hardware requirements and the power requirements and all the various requirements to run this network, then you end up with a much better form of decentralization because like, you know, bad governments can't drop a nuke on the data center and, and stop your chain. And so we don't really have um, these new primitives done in an optimized fashion where we feel comfortable that they're going to be tested and, and really tried and true and that they um, aren't going to raise the requirements of a node um, of running a node to, to like higher requirements than what people are happy with. And so I think that we'll just kind of push that a little bit and, and put in withdrawals and put in these other small updates um, that way. Everybody that's been staking for you know multiple years now um, can can withdraw if they want to. There's also like some some worries about hey I I deposited with um, you know this third party staking provider and and they're censoring transactions and this other one doesn't. I want to move my stake and you know if we implement withdrawals that'll be possible. So there's there's other reasons why I think withdrawals are like a little bit more important and they're also just a little bit um, easier to implement than than sharding is. So I, I think that in the short term, it's probably going to be withdrawals, a few other small updates to the EVM, and that sharding will come probably six months later, maybe a year. Not really sure. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Um, super fascinating stuff. And we had set out to kind of talk about what is why is crypto security so hard? And I think a couple of the points that I'm hearing emerge here in in this particular kind of like protocol layer of the conversation i think especially with ethereum is that there's just so much at stake right it's it's uh you don't really have you haven't taken the approach with ethereum to run fast uh, move fast and break things and you know so so moving more slowly and i think a lot of the ecosystem the larger crypto ecosystem has really not taken that same approach and that probably has cost them. Um, you mentioned uh, Cardano's proof of stake earlier. Could you talk a little bit about like the differences with Ethereum proof of stake and Cardano's proof of stake in that context? Because you know, I think for someone like me, I hear proof of stake, Ethereum's proof of stake, it all kind of sounds the same. You know, it's proof of stake, right? But what um, sounds like there's some pretty meaningful differences in how that's done. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure um, what their architecture looks like, but I can kind of compare Ethereum to like the general lot of all of the proof of stake chains. Um, some proof of stake chains, they're they're not really stake. Like you, you don't actually have your funds at risk, so they don't actually do anything. I mean, you see staking, like quote unquote staking in in DeFi, um, that's not staking. So, like for example. Uh, DYDX has, uh, which is just a DEX uh, that's that's on an L2, basically. It's on, I think it's on ZK Sync or something. Um, and you have these tokens, these DYDX tokens that are used for governance. They're they're paid out to traders um, in like an issuance model. Um, you can stake them, right? And and what the staking pool there is is like, hey, if something happens in the protocol, it becomes like slightly insolvent, then we dip into this pool. And, and we, we use it to cover and like make users whole on their deposits. So that's kind of like, it's kind of like staking, I guess you could say, like you get an APY on it, but it's not the same as like the consensus layer staking of like, I'm, 
I'm actually validating messages. Like in that case, like you're putting your stake somewhere and you're walking away. Right. And it's like, uh, it's about like taking the risk in that time. Whereas you're very active in staking in Ethereum. Um, and I'm not, I'm not entirely sure like the differences with Cardano, but I do know that if you look at the number of nodes and the number of validators that are staking and try to like say, okay, well this, this particular hundred validators are all the same, like rich dudes deposit, but all of these are home stakers and these are rocket pool. And these are like more or less decentralized. Ethereum is significantly more decentralized in that manner. Um, even like if you look at uh, like Solana, it just requires you to basically run like a thousand dollar machine with like GPUs and, you know, I think it's like over 200 gigs of RAM. And so you end up with like, you know, single or double digit or maybe triple digit validators running the network and huge data centers versus like thousands and thousands of validators across the world that are, are doing this. And so like the key differences, I think that, that really matter are decentralization of the number of nodes, but also the decentralization of like the actual economic, uh, like number of stakers, right. The, the, the money is more distributed. And so there's not like as much possibility for capture from a single individual. Okay, that makes sense. So there's uh, a difference. So the term staking is used synonymously for things that are quite different. So staking in DeFi is is not the same as staking in regards to, uh, you know, securing the validators of a network. Yeah, I think one way to kind of look at it is, is what do you do? Like if you buy Google stock, you're, you're kind of like, you're trading, you know, the price can can change, but you're trading your dollars for this like share of the company. And then if the company does poorly, you, you get slashed kind of, right. You lose money. If it does well, you get a yield, you get earnings, or they just, they have like Google, for instance, is a growth company. They don't really give out dividends. Right. But you can think of like a dividend, like an oil company giving out dividends. Right. And that would be like APY on staking. So that's like the security model, like, like, uh, not, not like cybersecurity, but like, um, financial, like is, you know, our, our buddy Gensler, is it security or not? Does it pass the Howey test? And so that's kind of more yep. like, like economic staking, whereas, in, in proof of stake, you're not only kind of doing the economic staking, but you're very active in the network. Like every six minutes, you're either proposing a block, you're testing to a proposal you saw and you're voting on it. You're like, you're there, you're doing something. And I think that's kind of the key difference. Very interesting. Um, I had a more broader question for you is when we each week report on IDGen, we're noticing some trends and securities and hacks and exploits and flash loans and, you know, people copying each other. And I wanted to see what your thoughts are if you whip out your crystal ball right now and kind of see where you see like a trends in security over the next couple of years, like things to look out for or things that, you know, type of attacks or exploits that we might need to watch out for or might become more popular. Yeah, um, I think I think maturity of the ecosystem is at varying levels. So without any like new insane complex like complexity added protocols like Uniswap um, will become more trusted and more trusted. Like they already kind of are. Whereas like new things like uh, these ZK rollups, like there's going to be hacks, man. It's going to be, there's going to be big ones, um, unfortunately. And I think kind of the way I see it is um, there's this natural bug bounty, right? So like Uniswap has billions of dollars in it right now. Like if there's a bug in it, 
like you could take billions of dollars. So there's like this natural bug bounty for black hats to go after these things. And over time they get like more tried and true. And there's a ton, like the, the areas where we're seeing like the most complexity added is rollups, right? Um, you already see complexity added in bridges. I mean, Solana, I, I hate to rag on Solana like multiple times in this podcast. They've done a really cool thing. They've actually like, they didn't copy paste the EVM. They came up with some original ideas. They scaled in cool ways, like props to them, but they moved so quickly and they got so much value so fast that they, they kind of suffered from this like lack of maturity, right? So you see these bridge exploits, like hundreds of millions of dollars, right? And what happens when bridges get exploited? The hackers always go back into ETH. Isn't that interesting, right? Like why, like, like it, that's the blockchain where the value is, right? And so I think that, um, ZK is going to be a big problem, especially because like the auditability of it. Um, if you see like some really interesting bugs, like the Aztec network had like a potential double spend bug where there was like not a constraint, like you could basically give, um, you know, a 32 bit input or a 64 bit input into a hashing function. Um, and, and there wasn't a constraint to check that. And so you could basically provide like a different nullifier and these, these null, like if, if you have a hash function and you, you like, like the way tornado cache works, you basically, you keep a secret and you have two hash functions and you compute one hash as the deposit and you compute the second one as the withdrawal. And there's a way to like tie them together. And so nobody knows who you are, but they know that somebody that put in that second hash function also matched some other first hash, hash function. And so they know there's no double spend. But if I can provide a different nullifier because of a lack of constraint on the input to that, and all the other checks look like it came from something legitimate, I end up with a double spend bug. And this is really scary in the ZK context because of the lack of transparency. So you have, you know, not all ZK is privacy. A lot of ZK stuff is going to be for, for compre like compression, like transaction compression. But you end up in this situation where I could double spend a hundred times and nobody's going to know um, that I, you know, I, I stole all this money because there's like privacy, like inherently built into the system. And that's why I think it's really cool that um, Ethereum has this roll up model where you can have stuff where we can go cutting edge on all of the new um, like primitives and all the new things we've learned in the newest research. And we can scale and we can do privacy and all this stuff in L2s. But at the end of the day, you can say, well, look, I know that the L2 is solvent because a, maybe a hacker double spent a bunch on it, but they haven't withdrawn all the funds. You can see it in the L1. So even like, I think my long-term vision, like the way I, I'm trying to see this like playing out is that over time, people learn to trust this thing more. The overhead of transacting on blockchains goes down compared to like the traditional legacy banking system. Anyone with a like phone and an internet connection in the world that doesn't have access to a bank can use it. And there's all these reasons to get on it. There's also like the penetration for like nation states. They want to get like the US wants to get the dollar to everyone. So what could we do here? We can make a cash like um, like a private, but like auditable and sanctionable L2. We could put USDC type like a stable coin, a CBDC onto this thing. People can transact on it. We can guard the like inputs and outputs of the rails. So like when people come in, we KYC them. If we find out that somebody's like working with North Korea, we can sanction them. We can do all this while still maintaining privacy. And that's really cool stuff we can do as EK. But at the end of the day, we can look at the L1 contract that like corresponds to that L2. And we can say, look, the United States has the reserves to like back 
all these dollars that they say they have because we can see it right here auditable. And so you end up in this situation that's way better than today's banking system, right? We have privacy like in some form in the banking system because of obscurity and we do have cash for smaller payments, but we don't really know how many dollars there are. We just like trust this M1 and M2 money supply that the Fed tells us. And they could be bullshitting us, right? We don't really know. And at the end of the day, like they're being like honest to some extent because they're showing us that they're printing a ton of it, but we can like kind of see all that information. So you, you end up with like a situation where you can have all the dials turn. You can have privacy where you want it and you can have transparency and auditability of like large governments and corps. And this is kind of something that like all of humanity would benefit from. Right. But in the short term to like get back to the original question, all of that complexity in ZK is going to be a big problem. Um, I think that there are some promising new architectures for bridges that will stop these bridge hacks. But like until now, we've seen multi-sig hacks over and over and we're going to see more, right? Um, I, I've seen people pitch things for like, hey, let's make a, a way for a white hat to like know ahead of time if they hack a contract and they deposit it to this address um, that they're they're covered, right? Legally, right? And you can put a disclaimer in your protocol. Well, who owns that address? A multi-sig. And so like if you think about the case of like MakerDAO, when I put my money in Maker, I don't actually trust Rune and the developers of Maker. Like I'm not trusting them with my money. I'm trusting the code that they wrote to hold my money. And as you see this ecosystem develop more, it becomes this thing where like I could deploy a contract and the contract lives on even if I die, right? And so people don't have to trust me. They can trust my contract that I wrote if they read it. And that's the security model that we like we really need here. So we're going to see more multi-sig because people just like to fall back onto it. We're going to see more um, issues like we saw We saw yesterday. We're recording this on November 9th, right? And, and uh, 2022. And we just saw SBF announce that FTX is insolvent. So all the major problems that we've had in the last year have been either shitty incentive design like Luna and, and UST, not saying that we can't have an algorithmic stablecoin someday, but there's like new complexities in game theory we haven't explored yet. And we failed at that one. And then CFI stuff. So it's banks that are insolvent, basically large exchanges that are really just banks. Well, look at DeFi. It's held up. We have transparency. And so I think that the maturity level of all of these different things, whether it's crypto economics, it's new cryptographic primitives or whatever, is going to dictate where we see the hacks. Um, I do also think that we should see a positive trend in key management. I think that social account recovery will help. Um, you can't expect users to keep their keys on their cell phone in a secure enclave. Uh, because if they lose their phone, then like they're fucked, they lost all their money, right? But if you have social account, like if you have account abstraction, you have social account recovery. If I lose my phone and my 10 closest friends can like vote on my new key and move my funds, then we've solved that problem. And so like if we want our grandmas to use this blockchain, like they would like to go buy Starbucks, we're going to have to like nail those things down. And I think that third party providers, like banks are basically shit out of luck. Like I, I don't see a, a, a future in 10, 15, 25 years where they really have a job unless they want to be the front end for people's wallets and manage like two of the three of their multi-sig and handle these things and like warn users ahead of time about, hey, uh, did you know that you've got approvals on these ERC-20s? Do you want to revoke them? You've had them, you haven't used this protocol for three months, right? Like there's different like value adds that they can provide without custodying the funds, right? Um, and I think that we have to get there. Another long-winded uh, answer. I think there's like, there's, it's obviously like a multifaceted thing, but I think it boils down to the maturity of the different, uh, the different aspects of, of the ecosystem and, and what part you're looking at. That was such a great answer. And I really appreciate it. And you touched on a, a couple points I was hoping you're going to that we've had in previous conversations. So appreciate that one.
Yep. So yeah, the, okay. So there's a ton there. In fact, I've got like a whole bunch of notes, even going back to to previous uh, questions of things I wanted I wanted to ask you about. Um, we're we're pushing closely here up towards the end of the hour, and uh, with with that in mind, I think um, maybe I'll selectively jump in. You mentioned sort of like uh, you were kind of outlining how what a system would look like, almost like a CBDC uh, mm-hmm. for the U.S. government. And how it could have privacy and so on. Did I understand that correctly? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so what do you think? Do you think that that's the way we're going? Do you think that um, the CBDCs of the future are going to be something considerably more um, feature rich than something like Bitcoin? Um, yeah, absolutely. I Let me find this really quick. So if you search... The Future of Money and Payments, U.S. Department of Treasury Report. This came out, let's see. Maybe this isn't the one I was looking at. We'll find okay, it and yeah, put a link is. in the show notes uh, too. Yeah, I'm going to drop, I'll drop a link uh, for you guys in Telegram or something. Um, this came out in September 2022. I think it initially came out in February. Maybe they updated it. There's basically this like recommendations. Um Encourage use of instant payment. This is not what I was looking for. Anyways, I think it's the Fed. There's this like issue. There's this thing about like a CBDC. And they basically recommended that it's not direct issued from the the Treasury or the Fed. It's like private banks or something. Um, It has cash like properties, right? So it's private. It's KYC and AMLable. And so like that's where we haven't, like we have tornado cash, right? There's no sanctionability, but there's privacy. We have um, Zcash for things like that. I think that the happy place, and I don't, I don't know that it, it, it lives on an ETH L2 at the beginning, probably not. Um, but the happy place is that you have the same controls that you have in, in the financial system now. Like transactions over 10K get reported or whatever have you, right? And mm-hmm. we can say, don't, don't transact with North Korea and don't transact with drug dealers and pay your taxes and all these things. And like, think about like, how much GDP we lose just doing our taxes for like multiple days a year. Think about how much revenue we lose from people that don't report their taxes. Think about um, how hard it is for law enforcement when they do know somebody's a criminal to like get their banking information. They got to, you know, if they route it through different banks, they've got to go get uh, like subpoenas and, 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 and warrants for all these things. We could just make a system, right? Where we can sanction people. We can, we can stop them from, you know, transacting with terrorists. We can have privacy where you don't know that I'm spending my money at Starbucks or, or at some other, like at the pharmacy, what kind of pills I'm buying or something that's like private. Um, taxes are automatic, right? Like when I buy, when I buy Starbucks, like the taxes get added at that little front end proof of, of sale. But like the, the actual point of sale, the actual transaction has taxing built in. Um, we could do all of that and we could do it so easy that like, it's just all automated and it's all just under the hood and we could get rid of, you know, this take 1% for PayPal to give you your money. Now we can get rid of so many things. And it's like, whenever a technology comes in where there's like a whole transformative aspect to it, where you optimize people out of a job, it always does well. And and I don't mean like that kind of sounds bad. Like, yeah, self-driving cars are going to put taxi drivers out of jobs. Like, I think everybody sees the writing on the wall there. Like, that's bad for the taxi drivers. But what ends up happening when you remove 
some kind of friction in a system is that everybody benefits. So the taxi drivers get screwed, but everybody gets cheaper rides and maybe safer rides. And so I see the same thing here. Like banks are the biggest rent seeking industry out there. So like lawyers and, and, and having, um, like when I transact, I, I think I talked to Hunt about this, like think about like, if I didn't have to go to a bank and I didn't have to get a notary to sign off on something, I wanted to sell him my, my used car on Craigslist. And I, I wanted him to pay me. And if he doesn't like it's collateralized, like we can do all that super easy now and we can build all this stuff in. And so I think that the yes, feature rich is like absolutely where we're going. I think in the short term, you're going to have things like Bitcoin, but it like, maybe it's just the key points that the fed kind of mentioned in that report. It's like cash, like sanctionable KYC, AML, um, you know, private banks issue it. Like that's probably what it'll look like. And I think over the long term, as Ethereum, at least where I hope it goes to, is that it gets so much value and it becomes the like truly objective global settlement, global settlement layer that every blockchain, every CBDC, whatever have you, just settles like the the big stuff there. And the way that like I kind of think about it is like what happens right now if I go to Starbucks? I spend money and and I I use Wells Fargo and my Wells Fargo goes to like their Wells they have Bank of America or something. At the end of the day, like Wells Fargo either has to pay Bank of America or vice versa depending on like the number of transactions and orders that go through all the like that whole part of the day and then they settle. And I think that that's what you'll see between large countries. You'll see one major blockchain where all the big value settles. And then as you go further out the security model, you get all of the feature rich stuff. Transactions are sub pennies to, to do and they're faster and taxes are optimized. And we just remove all of this friction in the ecosystem. And that will be like an incredible thing for the world. Like if you and I don't have to, to, to spend more time doing something and we don't have to give more money to banks and we get to get the yield on what we own and we have true strong property values and we have privacy, but we, we can stop, you know, terrorists from being funded. We do all these things and it's, it will be a beautiful thing, but I think it'll take many years to get there. Like, like there's just so many, I mean, right now you can see like all the different primitives that are required, the building blocks to make this thing. And they're all like, a lot of them are new and they're like a few years old. I mean, we've had zero knowledge cryptography since like the sixties and seventies, but like nobody's used it until recently. Right. So I think that we have a long way to go, but over time, yes, I think that um, governance and, and money will become like a singular thing across the world that we all use and we'll optimize all of the rent seeking behavior and friction out of it. I can't wait to live in the world that you're describing. And I, I truly believe you. And that's part of the reason that I'm so passionate about this space um, getting to this point. So it's going to be a wonderful time. Awesome. Zach, do we still have you there? Or did you jump off? I saw some, we might've, uh, we might've had Zach jump a little bit, but I can keep this flowing. We're, we're nearing the point where I know you were so generous with giving us an hour of your time, but we do have so many more questions that I know we would love to ask, but just a, a more personal one. Like, do you have a favorite book you've read recently or, you know, something that you recommend to people that, uh, you know, talking about what's inspiring you? Huh? That's a great question. Unfortunately, all my reading is like academic papers <laughs> right now. Um, I I am neck deep in uh, Dan Benet's crypto book. If anybody wants to know anything about these cryptographic primitives um, that are kind of new, like we've, we've kind of like, I know cryptographers and computer scientists are familiar with checksums, like hashing functions or familiar with symmetric and asymmetric cryptography, but all the zero knowledge stuff, whether it's interactive or non-interactive, 
cryptobook.us is the website. It's literally 999 pages. You can read about cryptography to your eyes bleed. That is a, that's like the Bible of cryptography and coming from traditional security um, where, you know, I, I kind of specialize in finding bugs in software, not so much in like the math behind, all, you know, all the cryptography that has just been like a huge help for me um, starting to kind of like look at the ZK AVM and all these ZK rollups and things as they become more systemic as more value ends up on them. That's just been like an incredible uh, journey for me. That's really exciting. And uh, we'll definitely have to put a link to that in the show notes. And sounds like the type of thing that I would try to dive into and every five minutes be texting or calling Zach and be like, what does this mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of tough right now. Um, uh, There's like this rolling joke. If you go like look at introductions to zero knowledge cryptography, it's like, yeah, there's this where's Waldo and you can cut out a hole in a sheet of paper and prove that you know where he is without revealing where he is. And it's like, okay, I can wrap my head around that. And then it's like, equations and Greek symbols and like, uh, you're like, wait, did I skip a class? Like, how did I make this jump? Right. It's kind of, it's kind of rough. Uh, I, I hope that there will be some like uh, Udemy or Udacity or like some kind of free YouTubes or something that can kind of spell this thing out. Uh, Solomon Crypto on Twitter does a really good ELI five on all the primitives, like every, like his, his Lagrange um, interpolation and, and KZG commitment stuff is like top notch. Like, if you don't understand some cryptographic primitive, follow that account, try to watch it, like read what he does, because he tries to explain it without math and he uses pictures. And that's awesome. I'll definitely give that account a follow. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, this has been a, a wonderful interview. I'm just picturing Zach during this whole time, which is like an ear to ear smile, because it's it's not often that I like can feel him so inspired by conversations that just get this uh technical and exciting so um we'll love to follow up with you more and we'll just keep our chat going keep these conversations going because they're exciting but uh we are at the end of the hour that you gave us and so i appreciate you coming on idgen and for anybody else out there listening give us your feedback give us a follow on twitter uh give us a like on spotify or anything like that and uh we'll try to bring more awesome interviews your way like this because this has been way too much fun thanks so much david awesome thanks hon and zach if you can hear us man thanks for for having me it's been great it's always a pleasure awesome take care everybody